Amen. Second Kings chapter 23. Now look with me at verse 21, please. Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book of that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all that the law of Moses, according to all the, excuse me, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city, which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. His servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in the place of his father. Amen. Well, all good things have to come to an end, and we have to come to the end of our study of King Josiah. Now, I know a few of you are visiting with us uh, for the first time today, and King Josiah is a godly king. He is a good king. He's an example to us. He points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we, uh, we do this last sermon with a sense of gratitude uh, for God's faithfulness to his people in raising up Josiah and recording the works of Josiah for us as a church today. What I want to do is take this section and I want to divide it into four parts and we'll go through each part with its applications. And uh, I, I did try to alliterate it to make it a little bit easier. Normally I like to do three points, but today you got four. So sorry kids at the dinner table, if mom or dad asks you what was today's sermon about, you got to remember one more point. All right, number one, verses 21 to 23, we are entitling this Reinstating the Passover. Reinstating the Passover, verses 21 to 
23. Secondly, we're going to see the historian shows us here the removal, I'm calling it for short, the abominations, removal of the abominations. That includes mediums, spiritists, teraphim, etc. Removal of abominations. Number three, remaining judgment, verses 26 and 27. The second point was 24 and 25. Third, 26 and 27, remaining judgment. And then finally and fourthly, verses 28 to 30, rest in peace. Josiah, rest in peace. So reinstating the Passover, removal of abominations, remaining judgment, and rest in peace. These will be our four points. Now, look at verse 21 to 23. The historian in the book of Kings makes a little bit less of this first point than does the chronicler. Remember that kings and chronicles often sound very familiar because they cover a lot of the same territory. But each of those historians has a different emphasis. And so one of the reasons that I think the chronicler spends more time on what the historian here in Kings covers only in about two, three verses is because of the emphasis of the chronicler is on the temple. And, um, and I think... Here, um, we, we're, the emphasis is, is, I think, to show why God's people went into judgment. Uh, the emphasis of the historian in Kings is more to show why it was that God was just in sending his people uh, into captivity. The chronicler, I think, is more interested in reestablishing the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple in particular. And so... I think that's why these histories, uh, though they cover some of the same territory, not always with the same emphasis. So let's look at verses 21 and following here in the first point, reinstating the Passover. It says in verse 21 again that the king commanded all the people, saying, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. Now let's start for the young children among us here to understand what is the Bible saying here. King Josiah is reestablishing, reinstating here the institution of the Passover. The Passover, you may know, is that celebration, that commemoration, we might call it an ordinance or even a sacrament, where what? Where the people of God got together one time a year in Jerusalem. It was a week-long festival, but out of that week, there was one climactic night. And at that night, all of Israel gathered there in Jerusalem would take a sheep according to the size of the family that was gathered, and at twilight, that is after the sun had set, but yet you still had some daylight in the sky, everyone at the same time would slaughter a lamb. Through, and the whole nation gathering together. Now, some uh, commentators and historians will tell us that there was so much blood from this slaughter of all these lambs. You're talking about a couple, some million people gathering together, and, and you got to feed all of those at once. All the blood would run down and so that even the Kydron River would turn red. And 
Why did the people of God do this? Why, boys and girls, would they kill all these lambs? Well, for a couple reasons. Number one, God had told them to commemorate what he did when he redeemed his people out of slavery in the land of Egypt. You'll remember that at one time, in the lifetime of Jacob, there were only about 70 of them. They went down into Egypt because of a famine, and over time, they stayed there in the land of Goshen in Egypt, and they multiplied greatly. Now, they had favor from the Egyptians so long as Pharaoh remembered the work that Joseph had done for Egypt and saving Egypt from their famine. But there came a time, as there often does, when so much time went by that memories grew dim and they didn't remember Joseph anymore and the Egyptians turned against the Israelites and they oppressed them and brought them in subjection into slavery. And so God, of course, long story short, saves them through Moses brings them out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea, miraculously dividing the Red Sea so that they're walking not even through mud, but as we've all been walking through mud lately, walking through dry ground, hard ground. And then as the Egyptians, Pharaoh included, pursue them with their army and chariots, God then brings back the waters together and swallows them up, drowns them all, and saves God's people from slavery and from death itself. God said, I want this night remembered for the rest of your history. I want you to commemorate what happened. Now, why, what does that have to do with the lamb? The reason was before they left that night, God had instituted the first Passover so that they would take the lamb at twilight, they would slaughter the lamb, and they took the blood from that lamb and they put it around what we today would call the door jam. Right? They put it on the top, above the door, and on the sides of the door. And wherever God saw the blood of a lamb on that house, everyone who was inside that house was protected from the judgment of God. He would, and the, here comes the name, he would pass over that house. God came in judgment that night through the land of Egypt, but everywhere he saw the blood, they were, he, God would pass over in his wrath and in his judgment, and he would not kill the firstborn in that home. But wherever he did not see the blood, he would bring a judgment, and he would kill the firstborn in the home. And there was a great outcry that night all over Egypt, and the people of God went out. Now, the other reason they did this is they looked backwards to what God had done in the past. But God had told them that they were to institute this Passover, not just so they would look backwards alone, but they would look also ahead to the future. And what were they to look ahead to? They were to look ahead to the day when God would save his people through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It was also to be commemorated as a type and a shadow, as an anticipation when Jesus Christ would come into the world as the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That this was also pointing a way for the whole world to look ahead to the coming of the Messiah who would come from Israel and that he would be the Savior of the world and that every household that looks to him in faith receives the application of his death 
and the benefits of his resurrection so that their house is what? Protected from the wrath of God. Everyone who calls sincerely upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the judgment of God. Saved from the wrath of God. You see, there is coming, friends, a day when God will judge the world in righteousness. And his judgment in righteousness means that he will judge justly, which means he will condemn all sin. He will bring his righteousness to bear upon all of humanity. The only way anybody can be saved from that judgment is seeking refuge in a perfect life. You and I don't have a perfect life. Where then are you going to get that perfect life and substitutionary death? You have to leave yourself. You have to go outside of yourself. And you have to go to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved from the wrath of God. A lot of Christians... We use that term here, especially in the South a lot. Are you saved? Have you been saved? I got saved. Saved from what? Saved from God. Saved from the judgment of God, from the justice of God, the wrath of God. We're being saved. Jesus comes into the world to save us from the wrath of his Father. Now, how does Jesus' death, what does that have to do with being saved from the wrath of God for our sins? Well, you see, Jesus took our place on the cross. And so Jesus was willing to bear the wrath and the curse of God in his own person because he had no sin in of himself. He's willing to take your sins and mine and own them as though he committed them. He dies for them. He is judged with the wrath, the fury, the hell of God on his own soul. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus is under the wrath and curse of God. He's being judged so that you will not be judged, so that you will be justified. So this Passover, now imagine this. The Passover means all that and more. We, we didn't even, we could talk more about the Passover and the eating of it and the benefits of it. But we got to move on. Notice what the text says here, though. It had not been celebrated, at least not celebrated to any significant degree, because you say, well, what about Hezekiah? But to the degree that Josiah sought to see to it that all of Israel would celebrate this. What in a sense, it shows the depth of the apostasy, doesn't it? Because if they're not celebrating the Passover, they are not remembering the great works of God in the past, but they're also not anticipating Christ. That's how bad the state of the church had gotten in the days of Manasseh, that there's no anticipation of Christ. There's no longing for Christ as a nation, as a people, as, a, as the visible church. Now, yes, there are indeed true believers, even in the days of Manasseh. Yes, there are true believers longing for the coming deliverance of Israel. Uh, we, we get a glimpse of that in the Gospels. We, we see Anna longing. We see Simeon longing for the day of redemption, for the coming of Christ. So there were, God has always had his elect. I don't want you to hear me saying nobody's a believer, okay? Remember Elijah got to that point and God said, well, let me tell you something, Elijah. <laughs> I got 7,000 elect people here, all right? They haven't bowed the knee to Baal. It's not quite as dire as you think, but it is dire, that the, the, the visible manifestation of Christ 
is eclipsed. No Passover, no Christ. And Josiah says, we've got to reinstitute this. It's got to be brought back. We have to reinstate the Passover. Now, the significance of this, I I hope you'll see, is that when you do get to the Gospels, and Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, what night is it? The Bible says it's the night of the Passover. They're in the upper room. It's the night of the Passover. The lambs have been slain. And what does Jesus tell his disciples? He tells his disciples the same thing John the Baptist said at the very beginning of his ministry when the disciples first started following him. He is basically telling them, I'm the Passover lamb. This night, I have longed to eat this with you. And Jesus longed for this night because this now is the culmination of why he came into the world. He didn't come into the world chiefly to be a good teacher. He didn't come into this world chiefly to be some kind of philosopher. He didn't come into this world chiefly to do miracles. He came into this world to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this Passover is the last Passover Jesus will eat. Indeed, it's the last one that any of us would need to eat. Why? Because He says, I am the Passover. He breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples and he says, this is my body. And he takes of the cup and he gives it to his disciples. He said, this is my blood. This is the blood that protects you. This is the blood that keeps you from the wrath of God. My blood in the covenant, in this new covenant, is my blood for the remission of sins. Everything that we used to do, slaughtering little bleating animals, is now fulfilled. Those bleating animals, the book of Hebrews says, could not save you from the wrath of God. Even the Israelite, the worshiper in the Old Testament, he knew in his conscience, this animal's blood cannot really atone for my sins. It was always typological. It was always directing them. There must be better blood somewhere. And Jesus is now in this upper room finally telling his church, this is better blood. We are not saved by the blood of goats and bulls and calves and heifers, but now by the blood of Jesus Christ, a better blood has been sprinkled by the Jesus, the high priest on the mercy seat itself. And Jesus himself says, I'm going to my father in heaven. I'm going not just to the typological holy of holies in the temple. I'm going to the holy of holies in heaven. And I'm going to that place inside the inner veil. And I'm going to present myself alive to the Father, though once crucified. And what does John see in the book of Revelation? When he sees the glory of God, he sees the great white throne, he sees the Father, he sees the seven spirits who, are the, who is the Holy Spirit before the throne, but he also sees one like a lamb slain. He's, Jesus is standing between the worshipers and the great white throne picturing for us that we worship God through Christ. It's the Lamb who stands between you and the Father. Your worship, why did God not kill you singing a hymn today? Why didn't God just kill you? He could have. Now, if you think that's crazy, it's because you don't know how holy God is. You need a lesson in holiness. All of us could have been wiped out here this morning by the holy 
wrath of God. Why did you, your mind, your mind is like mine. You know, here's the hymn, the lyrics, and your mind is like, in and out, in and out. Why does God accept that? Why, why does God not do to you like he did to Nadab and Abihu? Because Jesus is standing between you and God. Because Jesus has offered himself on the cross. He has propitiated the wrath of God and now God accepts you as a father takes his little child. And even if the, 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 the little child's offering is imperfect, it's still accepted by the grace of the father. And, and, you know, if I can make the application, this is why the Lord's Supper is so important. And a lot of evangelicals have forgotten the importance of the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the work of Christ pictured for us. That the, the, the Lord's Supper is, is the gospel being preached to us visibly in literal bread and wine. We eat and we drink and we're, we're receiving by faith, not in a corporeal, carnal sense, but by faith we're receiving the benefits of the gospel. So the Passover, the, the reinstating of the Passover here is huge, friends, huge. And yet it's short-lived. Now, secondly, I need to keep going here. Verses 24 to 25 after reinstating the Passover, you have the removal of more abominations, mediums and spiritists. Now we have seen this a little bit um, already with the removal of the various idols, but notice here something else is mentioned in verse 24. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols. Now let's talk about that for a second. Who, who are mediums and spiritists? Mediums and spiritists, again, for young children here, these are people who speak to the dead and try to get the dead to speak to the living. Mediums and spiritists are people who try to invoke some kind of magic or witchcraft or satanic power or something in order that they might serve as a go-between between those who are still living in this world and those who are dead. Now, you may think that's crazy, but stuff like this still goes on today, where people try to contact loved ones who have died. They'll, they'll go to people and try to get that person to conjure up the dead. Now, I want you to hear me here. Because the Bible says it can happen. And we know that because who did it? Saul, King Saul. Ironically, remember it was Saul who actually was saying that he was instituting the death penalty for mediums and spiritists. And at the end of his life, when the Lord was no longer answering him, what did he do? He resorted to a medium. He disguised himself so that she didn't know he was King Saul. And even when he requested that Samuel, the prophet, be brought back from the dead, she said, what are you trying to do, get me killed? You know what King Saul has said. She was reluctant to do it. And he said, just do it. And so she did it. And the Bible says that Samuel 
was brought forth. That means it can be done. And that means that we do need to be careful. Now, I'm sure that hopefully none of you are using mediums and spiritists. But I do want to emphasize that it's probably a little more serious than you and I take it to be. Uh, you can go down Lafayette Parkway. I think you can go down um, Young, uh, what's the road that leads to Columbus, Whitesville Road, and you'll see signs. Now, they, these are not mediums necessarily spiritists, but they are trying to do what? They're trying to read the future in these cases. So in addition to mediums and spiritists, I would say people who try to conjure uh, prophetically something of the future and tell, you know, fortune tellers. Uh, you can, you know, see commercials and they say, call the California Psychic Hotline and, you know, talk to us and we'll tell you something about your future. Um, there, there are palm readers out there, Ouija boards. There, there's a variety of weird occultic stuff out there. Uh, so kids... You know, just beware of this. Avoid it. If, you know, you go to some kind of party or slumber party night and they break out some kind of Ouija board and, hey, let's see, you know, if we can, you know, talk to the dead or bring up some spirits. Kids have nothing to do with it, okay? Because I don't know. These things are mysterious. And um, I know most of this town will probably write me off as some whack fundamentalists for telling you this, you know, what's wrong with a Ouija board or what's wrong with, you know, having a seance. But um, the Bible says it's forbidden. And um, we, we need to leave it at that. So don't get involved in that stuff. If you, you know, if you want to know something of the future, well, read your Bible um, you know, pray to the Lord to give you grace, to, to help you see uh, what, what the Scripture says. God is, you know, these things have been revealed for us and our children after us, and the hidden things belong to God. And after that, we have to leave it at that. And, and you don't know what kind of spiritual trouble you may get yourself into if you open yourself up to the occult. Uh, there. You know, the Bible says that these things, these witchcraft, these things are demonic. Uh, there, there are spiritual powers at work. And I don't know who is, um, I don't know who is filled with a demon versus somebody that is under the influence of a demonic suggestion. I don't believe Christians can be filled and controlled by demons. I think it's possible for demons to try to dissuade you from following Christ, uh, not to say that you are taken over by that demonic power, but demonic powers may assault you. And, and if you tempt God and you open yourself up to these evil things, uh, evil things may find you, okay? Now this is, kids, I don't want you to you know, go to the other end of the spectrum and just fear that you know, you're going to be gotten, you know, at any moment. The Lord protects his own. He is our shield. And, and so God does give grace to protect us. Uh, you remember how Christian in Pilgrim's Progress was greatly assaulted by Apollyon, the devil, 
And yet, what did God give to Christian? He gave him armor. He gave him a shield to, to protect him from the fiery darts. He, he gave them armor that, that would protect him. God does protect us from wicked spirits. And so um, these things should be taken with some level of seriousness. They should be cleansed from the land. So next time you pass the palm reader's sign uh, out on the road, just pray for that person. Pray they would repent. Pray they come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Pray that the business dry up. Pray that nobody goes in there. Um, and, and, you know, maybe God will cleanse LaGrange of this kind of activity. That's the activity that we know about. That's the activity that's, that's advertised. We don't know what's going on in the privacy of, of homes and what occultic stuff people may be getting into. Um, and you may think that's crazy, but I had a roommate who one year lived off campus at a professor's home professor of religion at Davidson College. He came home early from spring break, a day early. He lived in the basement of the professor's home. The professor's wife, with other wives, was having some kind of seance going on in the basement. This is at a Presbyterian school. So don't kid yourself that this stuff doesn't go on. Um, We are fighting a, a, a war that is unseen. And uh, there are people who are conjuring up, I think, spirits and demons. And uh, I think it's going to get worse as we de-Christianize as a nation. I think you're going to see more occultic-like activity. You're going to see more advertisements uh, like this. You're going to see more people giving themselves uh, to this kind of stuff. Um, We've seen even the worshipers of Satan uh, increasingly becoming more active now demanding uh, their, their rights. You, you can't have Ten Commandments at the courthouse and not have our statue to be eligible at the courthouse as well. Many of them are trying to, you know, they have statues that they want put on the courthouse grounds. So we're going to see this uh, increasingly, if, if God does not re-Christianize America, uh, this stuff is probably going to get worse. So he removes this stuff from the land. Um, and he gets rid of them. Also, you may wonder, uh, what is, in addition to mediums and spiritists, what, what, is, what are the teraphim? Uh, the teraphim are basically um, household idols. Uh, for some families, they might have been served as gods. Others, it might have been more like good luck charms. Uh, but we see uh, the teraphim, these household idols in various places in Scripture. For example, you remember how Rachel stole from Laban the household idols? That would have been the teraphim. And, you know, she sat on them and said, I'm sorry, I can't get up. I'm, on, you know, I'm under the ways of, the women, right, of women right now. And uh, she was hiding the teraphim uh, under her. We see that even uh, David's house had uh, one of these idols, sad to say, um, in his home. Now, I don't think it was David. I think it was Michael, his wife. But you remember when Saul was trying to kill David, she put the what? The household idol. Now, these could be as small as these little things, but they could be the size of a person. And so there, her, Michael's was probably the size of a person. And that's why she put it in the bed and put, you know, covered it over with a wig and such to try and make it seem like it was David sick in bed. But under Josiah, Josiah began to cleanse the land. Also, you remember the Levite and the Danites who took the household idols in the day of Judges. So this was a problem in Israel. And uh, 
and, and, and they were little gods. Or, and, and this, too, again, it reminds us why we should have no good luck charms. Get rid of your good luck charms. There's no such thing as luck. John Calvin has said we shouldn't even use that word, good luck, because we live under the providence of God. We don't believe in luck. There's no such thing as luck. Everything that happens, happens according to the plan of God, according to the decree of God. If, you, if you've got, you know, four-leaf clover, you know, jewelry, if you've got a horseshoe on your door for good luck, get rid of it. You know, if you've got uh, some Roman Catholics, they'll, they'll take, every time they buy a house, if you have a serious Roman Catholic, they'll take a saint and bury the saint in the yard, a statue of the saint, to protect the house. You know, if you buy a house from a Roman Catholic, you might want to ask him where it is and dig it up, get rid of it. I don't know. But, but we're not to have any of that. We, we trust in the Lord. We don't trust in uh, rabbit's feet and horseshoes and um, four-leaf clovers and such. And we certainly don't trust in Buddha statues or karma or other stuff like that from other religions. It needs to be rid from our vocabulary. It needs to be rid from our homes. Have nothing to do with any of that superstitious stuff. You are a Presbyterian. You are not supposed to be superstitious. You're supposed to trust in the Lord. Our faith is in God. And as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will trust in the Lord. I got to keep moving, running out of time. Thirdly, verses 26 and 27, God's remaining judgment, though, is on the land. However, verse 26, however, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Here's the sad part. One of the sad parts. Despite all the reformation, judgment's still coming because of the sins of Josiah's granddaddy. The sins were so terrible, so great, and so prolonged, so provocative, that God is going to bring a judgment. Now, I think, lest we think God is not being fair, keep in mind, these are reformations that are being instituted by the king, and God knows the hearts of the citizens. So it may also, keep in mind, be the fact that though Josiah is bringing about these reformations and the people are following Josiah, they do not have a heart for what is being done. They may actually even be in opposition to what Josiah is doing, and God knows this. In fact, you find at the end of this chapter, what happens? The reformations collapse with the death of Josiah. Josiah's two sons end up being wicked, and, and it's like the whole reformation collapses again. Now, here again, we have to re remember that God may bring judgment and calamity, now, the book of Job says this. Remember, Job says, shall we accept good from God and not also adversity or calamity? And he said that after he had received all that calamity. And we may have to keep that in mind as well. I don't know what a day may bring. World War III may have already started in Europe. We don't know. We don't know what the end of this year may look like for us. But I do say this, that we should seek to be obedient like Josiah, that even if God brings a general judgment upon us, God has also promised 
that even if we should suffer under that judgment, we will be brought safely into glory. God will see to it that all things work for our good in Jesus Christ. And so we ought always, at an individual level, at a familial level, at an ecclesiastical level, and at a cultural level, for the sake of our neighbors here in LaGrange, we should be seeking reformation, seeking the cleansing of LaGrange, Troop County, this region. We should be seeking to reinstate a godly Christian order. It's the safest place for us to be, both in history and in eternity. But it may be that God brings it to an end. Now, in the final two verses, Josiah dies. More is said in Chronicles than in here. Let me bring it to this end. Was this all for nothing? There's a, there is this temptation as we study Josiah and we learn all the good that he did and we see how quickly it all falls apart after his death. And we have to ask ourselves, I think, was it for nothing? Was it in vain? Well, I have a couple things to say about that. Number one is this. Nothing we do for the Lord is ever in vain, even if it seems like it was in vain. Nothing you do for Jesus Christ, when it is dedicated to Christ and consecrated to the Lord, nothing we do is ever in vain, even if in this world it seems like it fell apart. Our high school Sunday school class was talking about this historical point and theological point just today. We, were talking, we started a study on the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. And we were talking about what was the intention historically of the Westminster Divines and of the Parliament? Why did the Parliament say to these hundred plus theologians, get together and write us a confession? Because they wanted to unify the entire United Kingdom. England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland under one system of religion. It failed. It didn't work. Historically, it came to an end. With the, with, the falling, uh, with the death of Cromwell and the reinstating of Charles II and the great ejection that followed where they kicked out all the godly ministers out of their pulpits in 1662, it, all, it seemingly, seemingly came apart quick, quick, quickly here. And yet, what did God do with it? It wasn't a failure. We have Presbyterians all over the world now who have the benefits of the work they've done. And as I said to the Sunday school class, more people who are African or Asian study and memorize the Shorter Catechism than do Anglos and Americans. Now that's something the Westminster Divines, I bet, didn't anticipate. It failed for what they had purposed, but God used their work in ways that they never imagined. Did they imagine that millions of people in Korea, in China, in uh, parts of Africa are memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Thanks be to God that they are. Well, Josiah dies, verses 28 and 30. He was a good man and a godly man, but he got involved in a war that he probably shouldn't have gotten involved in. Now, it might have been one of those things where eventually it was going to come to him anyway. But just to tell you the story, because Kings doesn't bring it out as much as Chronicles does, Egypt is going to attack the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And King Nico 
is journeying his way, but he needs he wants to cut through essentially the territory of Israel. And Josiah basically is having none of that. And they come together as an army. And King Nico says to Josiah, don't get involved in this. I'm not coming after you. I'm coming after the kings of the east. But Josiah um, has other thoughts and he, he engages in the war and he's mortally wounded. He's, he dies and they bring the chariot back. And suddenly the Reformation just comes to an abrupt halt. And so in a way, we see, I think, what Josiah had intended um, doesn't come to pass um, shortly after his own lifetime. But here we are in the 21st century talking about these very things in a way that I think Josiah himself probably never could have imagined that people all over the world will be studying Josiah. Josiah is a great and a godly king, and he should be emulated. But also we see, and I want to say this secondly, it is only in Christ that these things will be realized ultimately. The best of reformations in this world will be the work of a temporary reformation. Only Jesus Christ can bring out the new heavens and the new earth. The godliest of men under Christ will never be able to bring about the new heavens and the new earth because only Jesus Christ could bring about what needed to be dealt with by his death and his resurrection. There's going to be no new world, no new earth if you don't deal with the first problem in this world. And the first problem was sin against God. You see, no political reformation, no ecclesiastical reformation, no social or economic reformation can, can deal with that fundamental problem in the garden. Only Christ can do it. And only Christ 